that harpsichord is so far out in front. And I don't like the harpsichord <laughs> generally. I've always referred to it as the classical version of the banjo. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 album complaints the show where lifelong friends musicians and above all fans of music get together to break down some of the most influential albums of all time as described in robert dimery's book 1001 albums you must hear before you die this week we're going to be talking well you know because you clicked we're going to be talking about the kinks we are the village green preservation society we're excited to get into that momentarily. And just to let you know, we are going to nitpick this record. We're going to mock this record occasionally. There's plenty of fun things in all recordings, even the most classic of them, to make fun of. And it's good to make fun of the things you love. So get ready to poke a little fun. Ultimately, anyone who sets out to make music and make themselves vulnerable, we have the utmost respect for them. But let's go in and have a bit of fun with a classic to kick this one off, before we play a little snippet of music, I wanted to start this one with a quote. So the leader of this band, The Kinks, Ray Davies, was apparently approached in the late 60s by the members of The Turtles, the band who had recently had a big successful song, Happy Together, and they asked him to produce their next record. And Ray Davies is like, why do you want me to do that? And they say, well, because you produced We Are the Village Green Preservation Society. And he says, you've just had a big success with Happy Together, and I can only offer you failure. <laughs> with that in mind, we're going to play a little snippet of this record. And by the way, don't worry throughout this podcast, if you're not recalling all these songs so well, or if you, even if you haven't heard it before, we're going to play snippets of these songs. We're going to take you along this journey, tell you about the background of the kinks, tell you about how this record got made, and play representative samples of the songs along the way. So let's get that started right now by playing the opening track and the title track. It's called The Village Green Preservation Society. Preservation Society God save the whole duck For the bill and variety We are the desperate and Appreciation Society God save strawberry jam And all the different varieties Preserving the old ways From being abused Protecting the new ways For me and for you What more can we do? Awesome. Now you have a taste of what we've been listening to from the kinks, and we are going to throw it around the room to introduce our cast of characters for today. We're asking for a tweet-length review of this album. Tom, I'm going to throw it to you first. How was your week? Well, not trying to Darby and Joan, but some of these tunes, pen and ink, generally good work on old Aunt Joanna, and I ain't saying it's a box of toys, but I can see why it didn't hit it big with the dustbin lids. But seeing as I'm a septic, who am I to Barnaby Rudge? That's right. 
I wrote it in Cockney rhyming slang to get across how fucking British this song, this album is. <laughs> to be clear, I did not understand any of that. So <laughs> yeah, me neither. Maybe we can get into that in a moment. But first, let's move it along to Marty. Hi there. I'm going to keep this one short. On the Village Green, the kinks are feeling nostalgic while abandoning their American R&B influence for an unusual pop-like genre that's as distinctly British as a Sunday roast. Awesome. Awesome. And this is Rob here, and my tweet-length review is, The kinks look inward and backward, and possibly literally out the windows of their childhood bedrooms to create one of the strangest, most varied and interesting records of the 1960s. Can this be the Rosetta Stone for all British rock music going forward, or will we end this podcast just as clueless as ever? I think it's the latter. On that one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying we're not going to understand the entirety of the UK aesthetic based on listening to the kinks this week? Yeah, I'm going to guess that because I did find it a bit opaque as far as the just essential Britishness of the subject matters. Now, some of the songs I found to be very compelling, and I think that the song Craft generally is very good. I didn't connect with the subject matter of the album in a way that I think somebody who was a contemporary of theirs and had grown up in the UK would have connected. And so I did feel a little bit like an outsider looking in to this experience that I didn't quite have a template for. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope we can just segue into general impressions here. But I'll, I'll agree, it's definitely not written for us Americans. It contains a lot and I do mean a lot of references to things that are a part of British culture that have not been exported. Kind of like Tom's Cockney rhyming slang (laughs) tweet. It's difficult to discern what's going on here, and it it required some research. But Marty, what what do you think about this record? So I agree with what you're saying. I think, though, that even if we're not you know, born, raised in, in England, that we could kind of get the general themes from this. But my big take on this this album is just, I'm just thinking about the Britishness of this band. And I can't think of a more British band or a more British album. I know like the Pink Floyd's The Wall has a lot of similar kind of like post-World War II kind of themes and real British stuff going through. But this this really, I agree with Tom, that you can't fully absorb this album without being a British person. Yes. And I would say that I hit a switch about halfway through my listenings to this album because I'd listened to it before almost as like a homework assignment. I'd been like, well, I I have to listen to this album because the Kinks are a seminal band, certainly a very influential band. And this is one of the albums that is described as their potential masterpiece because they've been through so many iterations. But this was a work that I think a lot of other bands glommed onto. And when I just started to appreciate it from the musical standpoint, I certainly definitely saw the thread through to indie rock, 1 million percent. Like, there are so many indie bands that heard this sound and were like, I'm going to make my weird late 90s lo-fi indie band based upon the sounds that the Kinks were putting out. And I also kind of got the impression that they were somewhat like the British Beach Boys, because I feel like the Beach Boys are so America. They talk about cars and surfing, and it's all very California, America stuff. And these guys had, I, I imagined that for British listeners listening to the Beach Boys, it was about as foreign as me listening to the Kinks was. So I think I agree with a lot of what was said. I think ultimately, I really enjoyed the record. I made mention of it last week, but I had a Kinks phase early in my music listening career. 
in my teenage years where I listened to a lot of the hits. I probably had a greatest hits comp of some sort, and I sort of surveyed their multi-decade career, but I hadn't really actively listened to this to any entire record, including this one, until this week. And so ultimately, I came away with a greater appreciation for things like the song craft. There are just some really, really great tracks here. The production aesthetic, you're right, it still feels hip and modern. One thing we haven't quite touched on yet is that they are sort of a classic rock band with many, I'd say over 10, very known and recognizable songs. They made music together for five decades plus off and on, and yet they are still somewhat underground. And we're going to get into why that is. But I think that must be part of why the people who love them feel really, really attached to them. It's not just their Britishness. There is an element of undergroundness to this band that has persisted this long and, like I said, have had so many hits. Yeah, I think the record was ultimately phenomenal. I found there to be a little bit of barrier when I was first listening to it. And so I would just encourage anyone who's going to undertake this to give it the several deep listens that... I gave it this week, at least, to start to appreciate, and we're going to talk about it, because they use really interesting song craft, for instance, but they don't hit you over the head with it. The songs are still maintain a light airiness, a poppiness that can mask a lot of really interesting tricks in the chords, and we'll talk about some examples of that. I think the production is kind of similar. They managed to use some really strange orchestration, and sometimes it does come off as strange or anachronistic. And we'll talk in the background about how it was even anachronistic at the time. So they were a little out of time, even when they were making this. But then in other ways, it's so forward thinking, like you said, Tom, and reminds me very, very much of a lot of the bands that came in the 90s and even 2000s and the sort of lo-fi indie that's still popular today. I made light of it last week that these old Kinks songs get picked for Wes Anderson movie soundtracks quite frequently, which is accurate. But there is a reason for that. It's because they're a combination of undiscovered and still sounding very hip and fresh. I was pleasantly surprised by how, with the exception of one song, powerfully unblues this album was. Yeah. Very powerfully unblues. And I feel like the direction of a lot of music in this time, 1968, you know, you got the Beatles still doing their thing, but a lot of the bands were going in that more kind of blue British blues interpretation vein. That's funny that you say that. Cause like, what would you call it? I was trying to think of the same thing. Each of these songs, I'm like, what style of song is this? And, you know, I ended up doing a little bit of research and we can talk about it as we get into the songs, but it's a very, very weird style of music. Yeah. (laughs) It is very lilting. There are varied styles on here. Mm -hmm. Some we've touched on in this podcast before, like music hall, which is a big thing in English tradition, that kind of oompa standing in the middle of the room, singing with a band and in a beer hall kind of thing. There's some waltz music. There's some Mm -hmm. almost Renaissance sounding music. There's some almost Calypso sounding stuff. So you do get a pretty wide variety, but definitely not blues. And the background of how they got here, I think we'll explain some of that. So let's start getting into some of that and continue to intersperse your your takes as we go. But ultimately, the Kinks are a story of two brothers, Ray and Dave Davies, who fought constantly through the Kinks' career, have all these big blow-ups, sometimes on stage, sometimes off stage, break up the band, get the band back together. They've gone through a lot of members, 
as Tom, I believe, said over the years and made music with a lot of different people, but they're really the core of the band. And this record represents the last, it's the sixth record they release, and it's the last one with the original quartet of the Kinks, the original band and kind of the classic lineup. So to give you an idea of the contentious relationship between Ray and his younger brother, Dave, Ray is the primary songwriter and the rhythm guitar player and the lead singer in most of the cases, and Dave is the lead guitar player and background singer and occasional lead singer. Can we just make a note? Don't name your kid David Davies. <laughs> yeah. That just seems like a bad name. I, I know that he made good on it, but generally speaking, I don't think David Davies is a very good name. It's pretty unoriginal. It's a little it's a little strange, yeah. <laughs> there are surprisingly a lot of those out there. There's a lot of Bill Williamson's Robbie Robertson. Robbie Robertson, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Rest in power. Yeah. I, I, I thought this was just a funny example. We'll, we'll talk about some other examples of how they fight, but Ray was once quoted as saying that he was happy for three years in his entire life, and those were the three years before his younger brother Dave was born. What an asshole. Good Lord. <laughs> uh, well, you know, his brother Dave certainly thinks he's an asshole. In preparation for this, I read Dave's one of his memoirs and he's still pissed <laughs> for whatever it's worth even though i think they've been playing together this entire time but they definitely like to snipe at each other okay so let's talk about the band itself and then we'll go into the background so we have ray, ray davies as i mentioned lead vocals songwriter we have dave davies on lead guitar we have a guy called pete quaith playing bass and we have a guy called mick avery on drums and this quartet although there's some other musicians on this record we'll talk about. This quartet is really the core of the Kinks, and they got together when they were teenagers and continued to play and make records up through this one, and then they started kind of swapping out. Very much in the vein of the Beatles, they sound like more than four guys on this album. And I know there are other players on it, but not a ton. It's not a Steely Dan album where there's 30 other guys playing on it. But they really do. And again, we're going to start the Beatles comparisons early because I know that that's going to probably be a running theme of like the, their career and the Beatles career kind of happening in sure. parallel. Um, but they definitely maximized that quartet for the amount of sound that they put on the tape. They did. I agree. And I think they were also very savvy about production. I think the difference, as far as I can tell, is they did not pair up with a producer extraordinaire like George Martin. And instead, it seems to me like a lot of the production ideas especially in this early period, were coming from the Davies brothers. Ray Davies was not only a guitar player, he composed a lot of these songs on piano, and it seems like he had a lot of ideas about how to orchestrate and add production details. And we'll get to it, but Dave Davies, there's some debate about who did this, but Dave Davies claims that he is the person who invented the slicing up his speaker in his amp to get the distorted guitar tone on You Really Got Me. And because he wanted it crunchy, and that was the only way to do it in a pre-distortion pedal era. But okay, let's talk about kind of where they come from, because I think this is important, and this will lead us up to where they're at when the record comes about. And I'm going to lightly go over the background, because I should say there are a total of four Kinks records on Robert Diamery's list that we will get to. And in fact, there's four Kinks records in a row. So take that for what it's worth. But we're, Not we're a doing... shocker at all. Diamery <laughs> loves the Brits. Diamery loves the Brits. Exactly. Okay, so these two, they grow up with six older sisters. It's a big, 
family. And I think one of the things that's significant there is that these older sisters' boyfriends, and even one who gets married and then goes to live in Canada, are how they get exposed to a lot of the early rock and roll records. This is late 50s, early 60s, when they're growing up. I'm just going to guess by how British this band is that... Their mom's like a seamstress and their dad's like a chimney sweep or something like that. Uh, (laughs) But that's my guess. Well, I think the Britishness in a way came later. Yeah, we'll talk about it, right? So again, raise the older brother. They grew up in a suburb north of London called Muswell Hill. They said it was like being from a town inside a city. So this some somewhere on the crossroads mm. of being a part of the greater London area, but also having a small town feel. Oh, by the way, his dad was a slaughterhouse worker. That's what their dad did. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same difference. <laughs> yeah. And they were performing music together from a really early age. In fact, some of the earliest times they performed as a duo when Dave was probably like 12, and that would have made Ray about 15. They were early classmates of Rod Stewart. And or the original drummer for the Kinks anyway, was a classmate of Rod Stewart. And so Rod Stewart would come through some of their early practices. But keep in mind, this is the very early 60s. They recorded their first single in January of 1964. So this is pretty early. This is before the Beatles landed in America. This is pre a lot of what we consider rock and roll. And the story of them getting to popularity that kind of all happens in that 1964 period. So they record Long Tall Sally, didn't really do too much. Record company wasn't super into them, given that the single didn't do well. Weirdly enough, they had been playing shows at the time with a band called The Hollies, which is fronted by a guy called Graham Nash, who you know from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And basically, Graham Nash stuck up for them and said, told the record company that they were going to be great and they should support them more in these very early days. Can we just also make a comment about that was a really poor choice of first single. You're going to take Little Richard's Long Tall Sally and do it by these guys who grew up in like south of London. I know it amazes me that that was like the mode of thinking that people had. That was the playbook. That's what everyone did. Yeah, every, every everybody did that. That's all they had. So they had this contract for three singles with Pie Records. Second single also falls flat. And at the time, they're playing shows around town. They're getting good response to the song that they wrote called You Really Got Me. The song, we all know and love it now. The record company hated it. They said, this will absolutely be a flop. What are you doing? Continue to cover American artists poorly. That's going much better for you. (laughs) But they pushed for it. They actually recorded a version that the producer insisted they slow down and took some of the grit out of their guitars and all these other things. And they hated it. And they pushed and they ended up fronting money to re-record the song. That's how much they believed in it. So in July of 1964, they put up their own money to re-record You Really Got Me. And of course, that is an iconic rock and roll song. And it skyrocketed pretty much right away. That came out a week before A Hard Day's Night. Gives you a little bit of an idea. And it's pretty raw rock and roll, especially considering that time period. You could argue that it's one of the first truly rock and roll riffs where we're really moving away from blues We're really moving away from that other, you know, it's this new genre. It's arguable in any case. That plus the distortion, it's iconic. Yeah, I heard that it's like considered a forerunner of like heavy metal, basically. That kind of really distorted. You could give that a slightly different treatment, and that's early Led Zeppelin stuff. (laughs) So this is what first 
skyrockets them to the public. And of course, they're riding the wave of the so-called British invasion. The Beatles are blowing up in 1964 as well. And the demand for British bands in America is huge. That brings us up to our favorite segment on the podcast. We're going to do the kinks by the numbers. First number I want to throw out there, 17. That's the age Dave Davies is in 1964 when You Really Got Me becomes a smash hit. He is still living with his parents. And there's a story about his mom busting in to his childhood bedroom, and he's got several groupies in the bed with him. And that's what makes him finally realize he needs to get his own apartment. Jeez. I feel that we must bring up this whole issue of Jimmy Page playing on You Really Got Me. Because in Dave Davies' autobiography, he powerfully refutes that. So it caused me to go do some more digging. Now, recall that on the last Led Zeppelin episode, and I think this is common internet lore, to say the least, but I'll, I'll mention that I had read Bob Spitz's Led Zeppelin biography, which felt very journalistic and comprehensive. And he specifically cites that Jimmy Page played on that track. So that was one of the reasons we reported it there. Dave Davies in his memoir says, absolutely not. He didn't play on that track. You're trying to steal credit away from me. I dug deeper. I got an interview clip of Jimmy Page saying, I did not play the solo. Hmm. So now I can't quite tell what's going on here. That maybe Jimmy Page played the rhythm track. He seems like he definitely didn't play the solo by his own words. And Dave Davies wants credit for that. And it's a pretty cool, wild rock and roll solo. I'm not 100% sure what's going on, but I just wanted to bring it up. Did he maybe play on the original slowed down version that the record company insisted upon? It's possible, but I have to tell you, this lore, it seems like it seems like people forgot what really happened. The clip I saw of Jimmy Page addressing it had the sense of, I played on a bunch of other tracks. I played on a whole lot of tracks at that time. I played on other Kinks tracks. I didn't play the solo on that track. That was kind of what he said. I couldn't tell if it was part diplomacy or it just truly didn't happen. It somehow got lodged in the rock and roll lore. So where I'm going to leave it is, I think I'm going to land for now on Jimmy Page didn't actually play on that track. Maybe he played on the original version. I'm not sure. We'll go with what they, they that comes out of their own mouths, though. But I just wanted to clarify that. Jimmy Page does not like to give up credit or to let other people take credit for stuff. So I'm going to guess that if he said he didn't do it, then he didn't do it. That's true. And sorry, just so I'm really, really clear, I'm telling you that it was hard to suss out. Dave Davies kept talking about the guitar solo. When Jimmy Page was quoted, he said, I didn't play on the track, full stop, implying no playing on the track. So take that for what it's worth. That could just be an urban legend that we on this podcast have propagated, and now we're going to put a stop to. But let's continue our by-the-numbers journey. Does it really matter? It's an iconic track. 50. It's the next number I want to throw out. That's the number of years it took for this album to be certified gold. In its home country. Gold, mind you, is 100,000 copies sold. It took over 50 years. That's insanity. This was not a big seller when it came out. And it took a long time for it to gain the hip status that it has today. We'll get into maybe some of the reasons why. Okay, a couple more numbers to throw out to you that will give context to what comes next. 16. It's the number of stitches Dave Davies needed in his head one night when during a set... In 1965, Dave became so annoyed at Mick Avery, the drummer, at how he was playing, he yelled at him during the set to take his dick out and play the drums with that. <laughs> and the drummer responded by unscrewing a cymbal and throwing it at his head. Dave was not cold, 
and the drummer went to jail. All right. Jesus. So they were kind of a rowdy band. Not only did the brothers fight, but everyone fought. They liked to drink. And this is going to be a segue. It's going to lead into the Village Green because their first tour of the United States, based on the popularity of tracks like You Really Got Me and All Day and All of the Night, some of their follow-ups, it did not go as planned. Not only was the band rowdy and drunken and disorderly, the shows didn't sell as well as they would have liked. The promoters were unable to pay them in cash. There was the sense that the whole thing was just being mismanaged by the tour booking company, by the promoters. Some nights they were billed as the kings. <laughs> the whole thing just seemed thrown together and mismanaged. And this left the band quite annoyed and given to the worst versions of themselves, which leads me to my next number, 45. The number of minutes a crowd in Sacramento where I sit talking to you today, was subjected to a single song. You really got me. It was played as the entire set one night in Sacramento because the Kinks were so frustrated with the tour and the promoters. That's badass. And we're talking about a two-chord song, so that's pretty rough. (laughs) That's not the right response. You know, I get that you're pissed off at your management company, but like the the fucking fans don't have anything to do with that. They just showed up for a good time. That's yeah. brutally antagonistic to the fans. So this leads us to, I think, we're coming up on the most important number, and then we're going to start talking about the songs. So after that Sacramento show, plus an extremely shortened set in Reno, these places are all relatively close together, so close by in date proximity as well, the band then threatened not to go on at all in San Francisco unless they were guaranteed payment. So the promoter ends up complaining officially, to the Musicians' Union of America. This then really culminated on a subsequent night where they were booked for the Dick Cavett show, and some booker or promoter backstage was call- started calling them limeys and commies, and Dave Davies ends up throwing a punch at him. And all this leads to our last number, which is four, the number of years the Kinks were banned from touring the United States. Was that the most costly punch of all time. The amount of money that they could have made on that British invasion wave tour in the U.S. has got to be insane. Insane. And this is a long period of time when you stretch it out and think about how much happened in music in this time. We're talking 1965 to 1969. The taste and the type of music being produced, we've talked about it here on this show, changed so drastically not only in America, but I would argue in the world. So, yeah, they definitely didn't cash in. And, well, here's the good news. They turned it into a good thing for them. Because being situated back in the UK, they decided to stop being influenced by what was going on in America. The taste, the bands, the records, the blues. And instead, focus on what they could see right around them. The British way of life. And so ultimately, that's maybe why we're talking about them now and why they're not a forgotten member of the British invasion. But yes, a costly punch. I had also read, though, that, you know, while that punch was costly, that the American Musicians Union were kind of gatekeepers for a lot of bands that wanted to come and play in the United States that didn't have that particular situation. But apparently they were kind of real tight with letting touring bands come into the United States. 
Like you can't be coming in here. We got to have fake the zombies playing in two different markets <laughs> right. on the same night. <laughs> right, right. How's Pat Boone going to get airtime? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I heard that they not only gatekeep, but you know that the Kinks basically were a scapegoat, right? Because they had these incidents happen, they were an easy place to place the blame and 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 kick out of America over effectively a grudge. What's, I think, odd about it, though, is that they continued to make hits in Britain. I mean, they were sort of an undeniable force. It's somewhat lost to history, but there were plenty of bands during this British invasion phase that we don't talk about today, right, that had either one, one-off hits, probably did make a mo- lot of money touring, but they did, didn't have a lasting impact on the culture. The Kinks had a slew of hits, in, even in the 60s, and to be denied all through that is kind of interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, w- Waterloo Sunset, when's the last time you guys have listened to that song? That's just an amazing, amazing, amazing song. Maybe their best. Great song. I'm Sunny Afternoon. Great song. Great song. These aren't even on this record, right? right? So the Kinks do have a lot of hits. Yeah, for any listeners who aren't familiar, we'll stock a quick top 15 Kinks song playlist for you, a little primer for you to get started, because they do have an intimidating catalog, and they have had great songs in a lot of different eras. But yeah, they are terrific songwriters. We're going to talk about that shortly. So, okay, now we're up to the Village Green Preservation Society. Well, not really. They continued to stay in UK and make hit records, like I mentioned. And in 1968, they recorded and released We Are the Village Green Preservation Society. As I mentioned before, it was their sixth studio album just to give you a sense of the time and place in the uk stuff like Jimi hendrix's all along the watchtower was charting when this came out and so that's why i said it even felt anachronistic for its time but you do want to talk about some shit luck on their part you know it was released on the exact same day as this album the fucking white album so they were basically going up against the behemoth that is the beatles and on the exact same day as this drops the white album drops yes I agree. And in some ways, I think this has a little bit of a White Album feel. Actually, I think the White Album has lower low points than this does, if I'm being honest. But one thing I read about that comparison, Tom, is that the White Album sold millions in, in like pre-sales, whereas this record hit the stores and sold a few thousand copies, meaning the latent demand or lack of demand for this band was part of it, too. Sure. The Beatles were just in a totally different position than them, like it or not, right? No, absolutely. And I feel they do get compared to the Beatles a lot. And I feel like it is somewhat of a super hipster position to take that the Kinks are actually better than the Beatles. And the Beatles were a little bit more commercial and the Kinks were a little bit more, let's say, original in some of the stuff that they did. And there's a lot of precursors that the Kinks did that the Beatles picked up on later. I don't necessarily share that position, but I can see why if you're a Kinks fan and you're going to the record store on the day that this is out and it's just a line out the door of people trying to buy the white album and you're like i'm trying to buy we were the village green preservation society over here you would feel like i have a superior taste because it's i'm, I'm going for the less obvious choice but what is the real comparison other than that they're both british bands i would say there's not a lot of comparison other than that i mean the beatles had infinite more resources they're better looking you know, <laughs> and, and I feel like their style of music's differently. Okay, yeah, let's, let's face it head on. I think they're worthy of a comparison because they are a longstanding British quartet who writes really good songs and really catchy melodies that, that people responded to or have responded to over the years. 
One thing I think the Kinks did really intelligently, though, perhaps as a result of this ban from the U.S., is they stopped paying it. They saw that the Beatles were still responding to the music that was going on in America, whether it was Jimi Hendrix or Love, the whole hippie movement, the whole anti-war movement, writing songs that tracked with that. And whether you can argue that the Beatles set the precedent for those changes in music and into psychedelic music and things of that nature, or that they were responding to them. But the point is the kinks very actively pushed away from that. I think the main comparison point is that they were both these British quartets that if you listen to their albums, they evolved their style I would say dramatically over the course of their albums. And, you know, the Beatles went in a different direction than the Kinks did, but it is very much a, they're not just running the same playbook and putting out the same album four times in a row. They are really trying to advance their sound, evolve their sound, and do something different with their sound. And they didn't end up in the same place, but I think that they had the same kind of mindset about that. Absolutely. Yeah, so if the Beatles went from a kind of American blues ripoff to power pop into psychedelia. The Kinks started in that same position. If you listen to All Day and All the Night or You Really Got Me, these heavy, guitar-driven, bluesy songs, they went backwards in the English music tradition very purposely. It's a little surprising. You almost get the bends listening to You Really Got Me and then listening to the opening track on this album. They don't sound like the same band. Right, but then you go, then you take the Kinks through the, the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and they go country, punk rock. They go way, way the other way. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, that's one of the nice things is they lasted so much longer and then had the ability to pepper hits. I have to admit, I don't know the kinks through the 80s and 90s, but through the late 70s, the kind of celluloid heroes, rock and roll fantasy era. I mean, some of those songs are great. And, and Come Dancing, even, that probably came out in the 80s. That has almost the Calypso feel, right? Totally, totally. Well, and I appreciate in a music listener, somebody who is a seeker, who is agnostic of genre and is just trying to find good music. And I really appreciate that in a band, too. Like, I'm just trying to make good music, and I'm not trying to be hemmed into, I'm a pop band, or I'm a country band, or I'm a rock band. I'm just going to try to make good music. And Rob, you mentioned the Benz earlier, and it's funny because I had been thinking about the modern comparison to Radiohead, which is we had a sound and then we have tried to evolve our sound and make different sounding albums over the course of our career. And I really respect that, even if sometimes I don't like the product. Yeah, fair enough. I think the point of the story is that for this record, and you could probably chart how the kinks got here by listening to the couple lead up records, but even to their fans, people that hopped on board in those early bluesy days this was a bit of a confusing move. Thus, it did not sell tons of copies and took a long time to gain the stature it now has. Now, watching a Kinks documentary this week, you will hear luminaries of the British music scene. The guys from Blur, the dudes from Madness, the dudes from The Jam, and they will say things like, this is a working class band celebrating being British. This is a romance of England in the details. And somebody said, it encapsulates all that I like about England. <laughs> wow. So it, clearly it's meaningful to a lot of people because it speaks to things that, that outsiders don't understand. I do think that's a huge part of its charm. And I think to a certain extent that was calculated by the band. Okay, let's roll it into talking about some of the individual songs. We already checked in on the opening track, The Village Green Preservation Society, but let's just play another little snippet of that and then discuss it. 
not save the George Cross and all those who were loving them. Speaking vernacular, help to save the Manchu, the Moriarty and Dracula. We are the office block, persecution affinity. God save little shots, China cups and virginity. We are the skyscraper. Did you watch the documentary about this album? Yes. Okay, yeah. I watched the, the same one, and, and when I first, I was listening to this song, you know, I've heard it a million times. And I've always liked it, but, but I've never really, like, thought about it. You know, like, I know that there's, like, a lot of references that I had no idea about. And so I went through and kind of looked some of those up. And sure, trying to... Same. Yeah, trying to figure out, like, what kind of style of music that is. But one thing that got me in that documentary is that they do this kind of, like, Gregorian chant church version of this song. And it made it make a lot of, of sense to me. Uh, I don't know if you remember that part. No, I don't. I don't quite remember that part. Are you saying they recorded a separate version? No, there's like children in a church singing this song in like a chant with like an uh, organ. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it really kind of it, that setting somehow like locked in. Like oh, it's this. It's it's this is kind of the influence behind it. Very cool song though. This song to me was a word salad. I got to be honest, and I'm sure that for a lot of listeners, it would not be a word salad. And these lyrics would make a lot more sense to them the only thing that i came away with is that is this like the theme song for people that voted for brexit because it's very much about like preserve the britishness of things we have to keep it to the english what's that line he says uh god save little shops china cups and virginity i don't know what he's talking about i think it's tongue-in-cheek it's definitely tongue-in-cheek yeah they sneak many many british references into a very short song they also sneak a key change in there Partly because there's only one section to the song, so they kind of needed a change, yeah. and they get it through a key change. I think one of the things this band's really good at, and this is a showcase for it, is they're very economical in their songwriting. I don't feel like almost any of these songs overstay their welcome. This run, this run, The runtime of this song is exactly the amount I can take this. And I do feel like this song is a great opening track. It's a great mission statement, hence why they named the record after it. It contains an entire world, is just implied in this little three-minute song. So I did have to go Googling a lot of things. Who is Desperate Dan? What is the George Cross? It's definitely tongue-in-cheek, but I think it's about, it's about nostalgia for a hometown and the simple things in life, while also being tongue-in-cheek about things like virginity. So I don't think it's in any way connected to modern racism certainly i'm not saying you were saying that tom sure no i think it's more like isolationism maybe and then maybe that is part of their musical ethos as well where they're saying we want to go back to a british version of music that is not influenced by the american version of music and this is they're trying i i got the sense of like we want to go back to a britain that is not insular but you know it's they got that quintessential british charm to it it's the village green it's the people who are like you know we're all about our local strawberry jam and stuff like that. It's about localness, though. Yeah, we should clarify for anyone who doesn't know. Village Green refers to the common area of a town. A, a central area where there might be a little park 
where you hang out with your family and have a picnic, you know, all the sort of common areas that would be in a in an old school town. And so I think it's coming from the place of a small town perspective more than it is from an isolationist perspective. Agree. I think it's also humorous. I mean, you know, British humor Definitely. isn't isn't is can be a little hard to to recognize sometimes. Oh, yeah. but I think, it's, it's, I think a lot of this. <laughs> I think a lot of a, there's a lot of humor actually there, on a lot of these songs. <laughs> no, dry as a bone humor certainly. Right, right. But I do think that there is an underlying sentiment there that does ring true of like we we want not we want to the exclusion of outsiders coming in, but we have a craving yeah. for this period of the past where everything was simpler and we all just gathered around the village green and we all went to the same pub and everything was great. Yeah, it's probably it's probably both. Yeah. I'm sure it's both. And there could be, just on a musical level, I think it's easier to sign on to what you're talking about, that Ray Davis was like, we're being led, it feels a little, by the nose, by what's coming out of America. Still true, to a certain extent, in terms of the entertainment content that America produces. And yet, here in England, we do also have a rich tradition of artistry and craft of various sorts. I want to throw out there the timestamp of a minute 52 where those backups come in and they're kind of hard pan to the right. This is so of an era, but there's backups kind of just singing along and they have the one high voice that's sort of the dominant note there. And it's they're all kind of out of tune. It just sounded so very late 1960s. I don't know if they invented that trope. I don't know if they were just playing along with that trope. That part you're talking about kind of reminded me a little bit of like a Beach Boys harmony, where you have the one one real high part. Yeah, I think the Beach Boys harmonies were tighter. Oh, of course. And again, I'm not talking shit on them, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this whole thing definitely has a lo-fi element to it. They didn't have as much time or resources, as Marty said. And I think this definitely feels like a theme song. This is a bit of a concept album. I want to say that Ray Davies goes out of his way to say it's not a concept album, but it's clearly written with a concept, a theme in mind. Let's say that. And so in this sense, I think this song is intended to prop up that concept. And I'm just a sucker for stuff like that. In other words, as a standalone song, it's maybe a little ho-hum, but I think what it implies, how it opens you up to the record, and yeah, all those little other production details just make it kind of get you in the vibe for what you're about to hear. Yeah, it's nice table setting, definitely. Nice table setting. Okay, let's move on to the second track on the record. It's called, Do You Remember Walter? This is my favorite song, and I had heard this song before. Man, there is a lot going on in this tune. What makes this song unique to me is how the chorus and the verse play with each other. 
they're both kind of this nostalgic theme, like you mentioned before. The chorus is kind of like calm, like Walter, remember when we used to go to school and hold hands and play on the playground? And it's very nice and sweet. And then the chorus comes in and it's almost like frustrated or like angry. Like, do you remember Walter? Like annoyed or something. It's it's and it's almost like a different kind of nostalgia where he's trying to like grip onto it or hold onto it. That might be too hard of a read, but <laughs> no, the line. I bet you're fat and married, and you're always home in bed by half past eight. And if I talked about the old times, you get bored, and you'll have nothing more to say. First of all, who the fuck is he hanging out with? All of us fat old married guys love nothing more than to talk about the old times. Who the fuck are you friends with? But he's like the frustration of like, I just want to relive the glory, man. And you're bored. You don't want to talk about it. You want to be in bed or talk about the future or whatever. I got that vibe. I'm reading it as he has a very passing encounter with someone that he used to know. And it's not one of the friends that he's maintained or even someone he thinks is terribly interesting, or maybe even someone he thought, like he's acknowledging that they wouldn't get along now for whatever reason. So he's it's that duality, like Marty said, of wanting to reminisce with an old schoolmate, but realizing you have absolutely nothing in common anymore, and sort of being angry about that because your life has moved on. I like the song topic a lot. That's an easy win for me. Can we also talk about how many keys this song cycles through? <laughs> Decoding what is happening with the key signature in this song is legitimately hard. And I I went through the chord chart. I still don't really understand it. It seems to start in C major. It then immediately goes to an E flat, which doesn't make any sense. It does this like movement by fourths thing. I, there might be four key changes in the song, which is really strange, is what I want to say. And it does wrap back to C in the end. But they do it in a way that is... It's very deceptive. You don't feel that as a listener. It's not abrupt. It's not prog rock. Sure, and that is another example of just really good songcraft. I, in general, I have no complaints about the songcraft on this album. I found some of the subject matters to be either opaque or not speaking to me directly, but I could not listen to a single song on this album and say, they should have put more effort into this. This is just some bullshit arrangement. They're all really well arranged. Yeah, it's wild that some of the songs are either like even throughout the song or have these really wild changes between chorus and verse. There's another song that we're going to talk about that also has just a weird verse chorus change that it's like, how do you think of it? You know, but when you listen to it, it makes a lot of sense. And again, to wrap back to Rob's point, four key changes in this song. This song is less than two and a half minutes long. They pack it in. There is a lot going on in a very short amount of time in these songs. But the longest song in this album is four minutes long. And that's the one song that is completely different from the rest of the album. It's like the blues song. Everything else is like under two minutes. Yeah. it's And it's very fluid how they enact it. And I guess just to comment on what you both said, there were songs I liked more than others, certainly. And some songs that felt like kind of duds of experiments. But it's never not interesting. Yeah. They do a lot of weird, interesting stuff kind of constantly. I know I came in pretty hot with my tweet length review, guys, so I know there's a lot that you have to refute about that. But <laughs> I still don't understand anything from that tweet length review. You want to give us one one piece of what the fuck you were talking about there? Darby and Joan is moan, and pen and ink is stink. So I said not to Darby and Joan, but some of these tunes, pen and ink, that's was my sort of hot come in there. But yeah, in general. It still makes no sense. 
pink and stinking. It took a while. It took a while to get this like into cockney rhyming slang, let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Let's move it right along to the next track. This one is just called Village Green. all the songs in our selections this probably does the least for me but it threads together the theme of the album which and it's a good companion piece to village green preservation society the first song we talked about so in that way it's i think it's essential essential to the album is my least favorite definitely and part of it is just that that harpsichord is so far out in front and I don't like the harpsichord <laughs> generally. I've always referred to it as the classical version of the banjo. And it's really out there. I was like, oh, there's an orchestral arrangement. I can barely hear the orchestral arrangement because all I'm hearing is harpsichord layered on top of everything. It's funny you say that. I put it on because I thought it was so different. I don't think of it as my low point, though. I thought it was really catchy despite its inherent dorkiness that you all were referring to. It has Renaissance Fair vibes to it. But there was nice orchestration, and I did find it running through my head, and it was just freaking weird. And the last reason I wanted to touch on it was that this track was the first one written. And in fact, they even recorded it, I think, a year and a half before. So it kind of spawned the concept, which was then refined and expanded for these other songs. But yeah, I thought, I guess what I'm saying is if you can get through this one and think it's cool and interesting... And you're definitely going to enjoy the rest of the record. Yeah, that's definitely true. This is harder to listen to than most of the other songs, which are more pleasant to the ear, I would say. That's funny. Yeah, there were definitely some other low points. I know you all are fond of playing the which song that Rob put on the focus list is the low point. But uh, I actually had a little bit of a, a choice on my hands, but this wasn't even in the top four. No. Okay. Speaking of which, let's move on. <laughs> One more thing about this song. I like they talk about the American tourists and their quote is, God darn it. <laughs> right, right, right. You're right. It is a nice companion piece because it, it hits the nostalgia from a different way, talking about it being commoditized right. for American tourists, right. taking a picture of this village green, which is just this ultimate ordinary thing for people who live in this town, right? Right, right. But I mean, I'm definitely guilty of that, by the way. Absolutely guilty of that. Okay. Let's move it along to the next song on our folks list. It's called All of My Friends Were There. My big day, it was the biggest day of my life. It was the summit of my long career. But I fell so down and I drunk too much beer. The management said that I shouldn't appear. I walked out onto the stage and started to speak. First night I've missed for a couple of years I explained to the crowd and they started to chill And just when I wanted no one to be there All of my friends were there Not just my friends, but their best friends too All of my friends were there To stand and 
So yeah, this goes back to what I was talking about before. It's just a, a cool change where you have this sounds like a circus ditty or something in the beginning. <laughs> or I don't know what I don't know what you'd call that. That's the music hall style. It, okay, that is that music hall style. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the umpa stuff could be called music hall. This verse, I had listed this as my low point, and I said the verse sounded like something that one of those dudes on the street corner with a bass drum strapped to his back would be playing. <laughs> right, yeah, like Mary Poppins like guy. Or right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but then it goes into that sweet like waltzing part. It's very sweet. All of my friends were there to see me, you know. That yeah. part, that to me hits me. I don't know, I don't know why. It's, it's, it's very nice. You managed to get two dorky time signatures into one short <laughs> song. I think it might actually be three. Because I think that there is the 2-2 two, two feel, but then there's also a 6-8 feel and like a 3-4 feel that are in there. So I think they might have three different time signatures in there. I think it's pretty elegant. I actually thought that this is one of my more favorite songs on the album. I really, really? like this one a lot. Yeah, I dig how they kind of fall into that B part. It reminds me of like a Sgt. Pepper's type of thing where you sort of f- have this rigid, 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 and then you kind of fall into a little bit more ethereal part. I thought it was really cool. It did grow on me, I will say, but some of the stuff I wrote down when I first heard this, it felt a little, what do you call it when a cat makes a noise you don't like? Not a yelp. Having a cat? No, no, no. A meow? It just, it just sounded like someone in pain at times, the, the vocal track. The other thing I wrote down, it reminded me, it called to mind the Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the uh, on second thought, let's not go to Camelot, to silly place <laughs> line. But I will say this. I like the subject matter of this one. Once I kind of read through the lyrics and realized, heard the story that Ray Davis was talking about an embarrassing onstage moment where he forgot the lines or he was feeling ill or whatever. He just didn't perform very well. And then he realized that all of his friends were there watching them. And that both enhanced his embarrassment, but also made him feel somewhat comforted after he met up with them at the pub afterwards. It's relatable. Oh, I can definitely relate to that. Having all of my friends see me play a shit show. Yeah, I got, I got a lot of those stories. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's round it out here with one more track we wanted to touch base on. It's called Animal Farm. This world is big and wild and half insane Take me where real animals are playing Just a dirty old shack With a hand of bark That we called our I don't know what band this reminded me of, but all I pictured was those big Rickenbacker guitars that were popular with like the birds and bands like that. That's the only thing that I came away with from the song. I This song didn't do a whole lot for me, but I immediately was like, this reminds me of something, and it has a Rickenbacker playing. I listed this as my favorite newly discovered track. I think it was a really catchy tune. I don't think the lyrics are anything to write home about. It's pretty light, subject matter-wise, but I had this one running through my head consistently, and one thing I took note of is that Ray Davis gets up high in his range here. 
I think he stays kind of low for a lot of the record, and here he feels like he's actually belting. And I just took note of that in my ear. It's kind of like a dance song. That's kind of what I got about. And I like I like how it opens up. The world is big and wild and half insane. You know, it's just like real yeah. good, strong opening, and then it goes right into kind of like a dance groove of, of the songs we listen to. It's most like an older. Sounds like more like an older Kink song than a lot of the other songs that are, that are on this album. Yeah, the part you just mentioned too has an interesting push and pull rhythmically, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. they retard the beat a little bit for that line, and then it drops into the driving yep. danceable beat. And there's something really exciting when that yep, happens. Exactly, I dug it, man. I thought it was really cool. I'd already heard. Do you remember Walter? I was passingly familiar with that one, so I can't. Even though that's, I think, the best written song. I enjoyed this. I would put this on a mixtape. Yeah, it's it de- definitely hard to pick. You know, there are 15 songs on the album. It's hard to talk about just five and pick which five yeah. you, you're yeah. going to talk about. Yeah, we didn't talk about my favorite song on the album, definitely. Which yeah. is Wicked Annabella. Yeah, yeah, of course. Now, <laughs> let's just talk for a second about which song they chose to promote as the single, which is that song Starstruck. And I don't even know if that was a choice of theirs or like that was Starstruck was the one thing that was like kind of put out there as a single. And that just seemed like a really odd choice for me. There seemed like many other single worthy songs i like that song but, but what is your favorite song for me my favorite song was picture book picture yeah. book that's good oh yeah that song yeah. rocks it's an obvious one but that's my favorite yeah. song yeah 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 i felt like that was to my, in my mind that was the most well-known song but it, it's definitely a jam and they front load the record in a positive way the other song sitting by the riverside i like that song a lot you're totally right though this presented a somewhat unique challenge where normally we try or at least I try when I'm compiling the focus list, I think everyone does something similar, to get through a representative sampling of the tracks. I think it's really difficult on this one because they touch so many genres and sounds. And what unites them, like we said, is the song craft and the sense of melody, maybe even the catchiness. But there are just some really different approaches to writing a song throughout this record. So this is not a great representation. There's just more to it than this. It shows you how gifted Ray Davies is. I mean, to be able to take so many different approaches in songwriting for one person is, is, is phenomenal. Absolutely. But again, to refer back to my tweet length review here, I can see why this was not a smash hit with the kids. This is not an immediately accessible album in a sea of very classic albums that were being released around that time. I can see why this one was a slow burn. I agree. I totally agree. I think it requires some study and hopefully... I felt that by learning the story of it and how it is so inward looking and how that was related to their band from touring the U.S., that helps appreciate it, I think. Cool. Well, we've reached the end of our focus list, boys, and now comes that very exciting time where we vote on whether or not you actually need to hear this record before you die. I'm going to throw it first to Tom. So, believe it or not, I actually have struggled with this vote and i came into the conversation thinking i i had a pleasant time listening to this album i don't regret listening to it but i don't think it's canon that you need to listen to it but i gotta tell you my opinion has changed and i'm gonna give it a yes i'm gonna give it a i think you need to hear this to appreciate music that has come after and maybe see where there's more than just the influence of the beatles and the rolling stones on music that came later so i'll give it a yes but i gotta admit it's a little bit of a squeaker not because i didn't enjoy it but whether or not it was canon 
was something I struggled with. You know, and thank you for that, Tom. But also, I forgot to mention, since you brought up the Rolling Stones, just briefly, I have one more anecdote that I wanted to mention to the team. Well, one is that Nicky Hopkins played piano on this. He played on Let It Bleed and a few other Rolling Stones records, I believe. Probably some other classic records. But also a guy called David Whitaker handled the orchestral arrangements on this. And in researching it this week, it cleared up a bit of weird trivia that I'd always personally been confused about. So I thought I'd share it with you guys, which is David Whitaker is probably most known for an orchestral arrangement of a Rolling Stones song called The Last Time, which was put onto a weird one-off instrumental orchestral versions Rolling Stones album that I had never heard before. The only reason that came into prominence in the modern world is because that very same orchestral arrangement was sampled for the 90s hit Bittersweet Symphony, creating a lawsuit that the Rolling Stones eventually won. And I remember when that lawsuit was going on and they would always refer to this Rolling Stones song the last time. And I'd be like, I know that song. I don't remember anything like that string line in that song. It's because it's not in the hit version of the last time. It's in this special one-off orchestral version, and it is ripped whole cloth from that. So we'll include that on the playlist, but in case anyone else was confused, now you know. Awesome. Okay, Marty, on to you. We're continuing our voting. Is this a must-listen before you die? So one of the quotes I saw Ray Davies give was that this is an album for friends, not for airplay. And this is an album that I would share with my friends. This would probably be one of the, the, if I had to pick 50 albums to share with my friends from all time, this would probably be one of them. So for me, this is a no-brainer, yes, to be on Robert Dimery's list and as well be included in any sort of British Heritage Museum or Smithsonian equivalent. Definite yes. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to make it unanimous and give it a yes too. And honestly, it's an easy yes for me, but I didn't come in last week knowing that it would be an easy yes. I knew that it held some, that it had a hipness to it in the zeitgeist, at least the modern zeitgeist, that people thought well of it. And I know that the Kinks are an important band, certainly. Like I said, I'm familiar with a bunch of their songs. I like a bunch of their songs. And I know Ray Davies to be a great and prolific songwriter. Sometimes it can be really hard with bands that have spanned so many eras to get one album that we feel is worthy of really listening to that entire album. I'd feel like this is such an interesting time capsule of a band, of an era, of a previous era to when it was recorded. It has so much variety on it. There's a lot to pick apart. And so for all those reasons, and it's fun too, and it's it's a good listen ultimately. For all those reasons, I think it is absolutely a must listen. Congratulations, Kinks. You made it. You're on our list. Okay. With that settled, I think the next order of business is to reach our hand into the old mailbag and pull out some missives from our fans. You guys ready for that? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Excelente. The first one comes to us from Justin from Indianapolis. Justin from Indianapolis writes, Hey, guys, I just listened to the spiritualized episode, and I totally agree with your takedown of them. This is one of the first albums I bought when I worked at a record store in Boulder, Colorado, on the recommendation of all the cool kid tastemakers. Now, I should say, I come from a background of drug music, (laughs) he clarifies in parentheses, the dead and fish, and later got into some space and dream pop like Beach House and Luna. 
but this music is more lethargic than lysergic. I just wanted to pause on that because I thought that <laughs> was, was well idea. worded. <laughs> nice play on This guy's degree in English, which explains why he was working at a record store. <laughs> <laughs> He goes on to say, your criticism of the pretension, bad lyrics, poor delivery, and lack of any melody, let alone laser-guided ones, was spot on. Keep it up. I love the pod. It feels like the old days of debating music with my coworkers in the shop. Well, thank you for that vote of confidence. I think we've gotten a few missives about spiritualized, some people repping for them. I think the last guy I wrote in said he was a spiritualized super fan, but still didn't think it was a must-listen, so that was a little... Confusing, but Justin here agrees with us wholeheartedly and with pedantic language, which is excellent. Okay, we have one more. Randy from New Jersey writes, first, I have to say that I really do enjoy your podcast. That usually means he's about to yell at us. (laughs) (laughs) One of my all-time favorite albums is Love's Forever Changes. It was very hard for me to listen to this episode. I feel like you obviously did the research and it felt like listening to someone's who's read a few books and listened to a few interviews versus living with it when it first came out. Well, that is that is true, Randy. Supremely accurate, yes. It was very unique at the time, is the point of Randy's email. He fell in love with it. It just didn't sound like anything else that was coming out at the time. He felt some of our comparisons were a little off base. Listen, we hear you. It is hard, nay impossible, to put ourselves in the mindset, the context, or to have something akin to the experience of experiencing this record when it first came out. Of course, we're doing our best with a limited amount of time and space, and of course, without a time machine. So... I hear you. We appreciate that context of people who lived through these movements. That experience of getting a brand new record off the shelf is inherently different than revisiting it 50 years later. Anyway, thank you for writing in. And if anyone else wants to tell us what we got wrong or right, especially British folks about the kinks, you want to tell us what we missed, what British references we don't understand, what British humor we do understand, or Anything you want to tell us, uh, give us more anecdotes about any of the records we've covered here on the podcast, send us an email over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. And last but not least, I believe we just need to get our homework for next week. Tom. All righty. Thank you very much. I have the Albinator. It has been enjoying a pint or two in the pub. It's a little tipsy, but, you know, it's good-natured, and uh, it certainly doesn't hate foreigners, as I implied earlier. That's, you know, maybe maybe I took that comparison a little bit too far. We are going to spin that old wheel and see what we will be listening to next week. So without any further ado, drumroll, please, we will be listening to... The album is Deja Vu. The band is Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And I just have to say, I'm on the hook for the research for next week, and now i got to research four fucking people? Are you kidding me? It's hard (laughs) enough to research one band. Now i got to research four people with all individual careers leading up to this. God damn. Let's not forget that all these songs aren't even on Spotify. Oh, God damn. (laughs) How about you only do the living ones? (laughs) Fair enough. We're definitely going to rank them or do some kind of fuck, marry, kill with them next week. Exactly. Well, that should be fun. That's pretty much a stone cold classic but i haven't revisited in a while and actually this is a great segue to reminding the listeners that we're doing a listener request month coming up november we are giving back we're paying thanks to you the listeners and we want your request tell us what we need to cover 
Get those votes in. Get them over to us via email. Get them over to us via direct message, via Instagram comments, however you want to get them over to us. We will take them into our hearts, and we will pump out some listener requests in November. I have a feeling that Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young might have been one of those votes anyway, so thankfully the Albinator maybe has been listening in to our calls and is throwing us a bone here early and often. I don't think the Albinator gives a shit. The Albinator's got his whole other thing going on, man. He's got a rich life outside of this. <laughs> sure, the Albinator's trying to sell us something somehow. <laughs> okay, well, I think that about wraps it up. Listen to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Deja Vu over the course of the next week, and join us again next week to discuss that record. We'll be here. We hope you join us as well. We're going to sign off for now for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. And I've been Marty. Boosh. Boosh.